The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. We are live in Krakow, we're live in Moscow and London as the Ukraine crisis unfolds. These are your headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky claims Russian troops have resumed missile strikes as the health ministry reports 57 casualties and almost 170 injuries in attacks on military and civilian locations. I know there is much fake news, including that I had left Kiev. I remain in the capital with my people. Western governments have hit Russia with a slew of sanctions, with EU leaders agreeing to target 70% of Russian banks, but stopping short of disconnecting Moscow from the SWIFT payment system. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. And here in Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin meets with the country's biggest business leaders. This as Western sanctions begin to bite. Everything that's going on is a least evil solution. They just didn't leave us a chance to act differently. They created such security risks that we couldn't react otherwise. All the attempts failed. They failed. Bounce back following a late reversal on Wall Street while oil prices stabilize but hover near levels not seen since 2014. So let's bring you very quickly up to speed with the latest developments on the ground in Ukraine. Explosions have been heard across Kiev this morning, with Ukraine's foreign minister saying the capital is coming under Russian missile fire. US and Ukrainian officials say Moscow plans on toppling the country's government. Earlier this morning, Ukrainian officials conceded that Russia has seized control of the Chernobyl nuclear plant just to the north of Kiev. Well, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has said Russia has resumed missile strikes on both military and civilian targets, while troop movements have stopped for the time being. In a televised address on Thursday night, Zelensky said Russia is targeting him and his family directly and that the country is fighting alone. Ukraine's health ministry has reported at least 57 people have died in the fighting with Russia and a further 169 have been injured. It remains unclear what proportion of casualties are combat and non-combat civilians, Karen. Western allies have responded to Russia's incursion into Ukraine with a range of sanctions targeting the Russian economy. U.S. President Joe Biden unveiled a series of measures seeking to block Russia's two biggest banks, Spurbank and VTB, from the U.S. financial system. The restrictions also bar access to money markets for Russia's key institutions, including gas giant Gazprom and the shipping group Sovkomflot. Finally, the U.S. will also block the export of crucial technologies to Russia. 
Now, the U.S. sanctions package stops short of cutting Russia off from the international payment system SWIFT. However, President Joe Biden insisted the latest measures will hit just as hard. The sanctions that we've proposed on all their banks have of equal consequence, maybe more consequence than SWIFT, number one. Number two, uh, it is always an option, but right now that's not the position that the rest of uh, Europe wishes to take. We will be bringing you coverage on the war in Ukraine from across the globe. Steve is in Krakow, Poland, by the western border with Ukraine. Hadley is in Moscow and Sylvia is in Brussels, where European leaders have been drawing up a joint response to the crisis. Let's get out to Steve first. Steve, there's been plenty of questions about what the end game is for Putin, whether it's eastern Ukraine, the country itself or borders beyond, which has provoked plenty of concern among ex-Soviet countries about what may take place from here. And you're standing in Poland. So just give us a sense of what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, it's very important to understand the geography. This is a region of very complicated geography. I mean, for instance, even here in Poland, we have enormous links uh, with uh, Ukraine. It's one of the largest trading partners with Ukraine. There's uh, millions uh, of Ukrainian migrant workers who work in Poland as well. And it's similar, actually, with Russia and Ukraine as well. There are lots of overlaps in the populations. To say someone is just purely Russian or a Russian speaker or Ukrainian and a Ukrainian speaker, that is quite disingenuous as well because the historical links and community by community throughout this region are enormous. That said, of course, uh, the Russian leadership has questioned the sovereignty of Ukraine, which any sensible observer has said is just absolutely ludicrous as well. It seems by going for an all-out attack, people are now really questioning, as you quite rightly say, what is the end game from President Putin? And I have spent the last 48 hours listening to everybody I can get my hands on, political analysts on both sides of the Atlantic, from across Europe as well, and people are very confused about what Vladimir Putin has done and why he has gone for an all-out attack on Ukraine rather than a piecemeal attack uh, just to seal uh, the independence of those two regions in the Donbass that we spent two uh, very long uh, days talking about before um, this crisis uh, became even um, deeper than it is now. Let me just tell you a little bit about the region as well. I'm in Krakow, which is, of course, to the uh, kind of, uh, the, the southeast uh, of Poland as well. We're 332 miles away uh, from the border. Between us uh, and Lvov, of course, is the border as well. Lvov is very close to the border, 70 kilometers. That, of course, as our viewers know, is in uh, western Ukraine now. Uh, but what is interesting is the response isn't just about sanctions, of course. It's about what happens next with NATO and on another level, and perhaps the most important level is what happens if there is a flood uh, of refugees and people fleeing the country uh, in the um amidst this horrific bombing that Kiev is seeing once again this morning and other parts of the country from Odessa to the Donbass are also seeing fierce, fierce fighting. We heard a lot about, of course, um, the airfield fighting uh, just outside of Kiev as well. Very important, of course, as anyone who's studied military history to know that the airfields are very important if the Russians want to gain a foothold uh, and pour more uh, firepower and personnel into the area as well. So far uh, on the Polish side of the border, we haven't seen the enormous numbers uh, of refugees and migrants people fear as well. There have been trains going across from Ukraine, uh, stopping as far as Warsaw as well, which have talked about uh, people coming off, coming out, shell-shocked, very afraid, not sure what's happening next as well. But in terms of the flood, the millions are, are, of refugees and migrants coming out of the war zone, we haven't seen that. That was talked about, of course, at the UN level as well. But in terms of beefing up security in this region, well, I can tell you the 82nd Airborne um, is to the east of me now. 4,700 members of the Airborne have come out of Fort Bragg. Uh, North Carolina and are now in the region as well, not only to show a force 
in terms of beefed up NATO power, but also to help the Polish authorities and uh, uh, an army if indeed there is a flood of refugees setting up reception centres and what have you. But Olaf Scholz has been talking uh, about the importance of NATO uh, and where it goes next. Let's listen in to the German leader. Putin should not underestimate NATO's determination to defend all its members. This applies explicitly to our NATO partners in the Baltic states, in Poland and Romania, in Bulgaria and in Slovakia. Without ifs and buts, Germany and its allies know how to protect themselves. It, it, it seems inconceivable, though, that if, if, if President Putin wanted to weaken NATO, his actions have probably done the opposite. And I think that's, that's not just rhetoric, that's not just um, propaganda. Uh, clearly, nations such as Poland now are really looking to boost what's called the eastern flank uh, of NATO. And we've talked a lot about the role of NATO over the years. Of course, the French president's been very, very critical about it as well. But from the Baltic states all the way through to Poland and elsewhere, including the likes of Romania as well, it seems inconceivable now that NATO won't have uh, a new uh, resurgence in sense of purpose as well. Poland, for its part, has recently ordered $6 billion worth of US hardware, including 250 uh, M1 Abrams tanks as well. And of course, has an enlarged F-15 presence from the US Air Force here as well. And I mentioned uh, the US airborne troops who are uh, to the east of me. So it seems if President Putin wanted to weaken NATO, Jeff, it seems that perhaps he's going to have the opposite effect. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the coordination has been very good to see. And perhaps it suggests uh, that there is a renewed sense of unity in this organization. I, th I, I think one of the challenges here, though, if we look at the market response, the markets appear to be suggesting that they don't feel that these sanctions will necessarily be de destabilizing for uh, Western economies, the Russian economy, or even the global economy. And I think that's fascinating because um, I think the market is always sharp at drawing its own conclusions. And as we look at the response that we've seen from the West, yes, we've seen this uptick in commentary around unity. But there are be many in Ukraine, I think, who will feel disappointed that these sanctions actually fall short of putting real pressure on President Putin at this point. And we know what these sanctions do and what they don't do. They won't stop this attack in its tracks, and they certainly won't bring NATO troops onto the ground in Ukraine or even uh, Russia, for that matter. And they won't stop energy or wheat being traded, which of course is something that energy markets have been incredibly concerned about. Um, what they may do, I suppose, is, is hurt Russian civilians, hurt the long-term uh, growth path of the Russian economy, uh, and perhaps they will um, cause significant uh, uh, damage to the, to the financial system, the banking system but not that sufficient to actually cause a change in mindset, it seems to me, within the Kremlin. And of course, um, when you think about the, um, the, the, the banking system, the real damage would have been done by a disconnection of the SWIFT system. And at this stage, it seems that there are still some European countries that are resisting that for their own interests.
Yeah, and, and look, you're absolutely right. But what we have to be, uh, and, and another phrase that uh, of perhaps uh, Herr Scholz is very aware of, and I think you were referring to him when you talked about the reluctance around Swift as well, is realpolitik as well. And the fact of the matter is when you have inextricable links, and, and get, Jeff, Jeff, you know this better than anyone. You spent a lot of time uh, in, in Germany. You spent looking at the elections. You spent a lot of time in Rosh, Russia and Moscow talking to President Putin yourself uh, over the years as well. The fact of the matter is the, these economies are inextricably linked by finance, uh, by money flows across the board by, by energy, of course. And, and what I think is the, is the real ramifications, not the short-term fallout regarding uh, European gas supplies or, or, or SWIFT system payments going in both directions, but surely it's the medium-term thinking about those huge, huge links between Germany and Russia, between the EU and Russia, between the United Kingdom, which, let's face it, many people have accused of being a laundromat uh, for dirty Russian money as well. And I think there's a, a fair amount of accuracy in some of those uh, accusations as well. It's just the medium to longer term outlook, I think, that has changed. I think in the short term, there are a lot of hostages to fortune on both sides of the divide. If you cut them off from SWIFT, that means you can't pay them for the energy, and which means they're not going to supply the energy. So you can see how very quickly this becomes a, a very existential problem for the European economy around oil too as we talk about ramifications here and the reshaping of the thinking around doing business with Russia. I mean, we've had, uh, I guess, over the last three decades, this connection from Europe towards Russia and trying to ensure that it's doing business with Europe and keeping uh, negotiations and relations fairly warm uh, to an extent. But now if you think about some of the language we were hearing yesterday from uh, the uh, UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he was effectively talking about ceasing the, the dependence, collectively ceasing some of the dependence on Russian oil. And we think about Nord Stream too. that was very quick for the Germans to stop the certification process there. Is this a pivotal moment about the, the sort of relationship we will see in future with Russia? It will not necessarily be one where the country is embraced for doing business in the capital, and that's from the UK here in London to other places across Europe. Will we see a change in that conversation around financial transactions and also oil, or is it just the heat of the moment now? Will this change in future? I think that's quite pivotal to see. Uh, the other point is, around uh, what we're seeing from the, the Russian side and potentially even the Chinese. And don't forget the Chinese have been criticised at this point for not condemning the military invasion that we have witnessed, whether there is a, a move afoot by the Russians and potentially the Chinese to, to weaken the trade we're seeing using dollars and euros, whether they will use this moment as well to try and increase their dominance of, of the payment system in their part of the world. So I think plenty of ramifications here. And of course, when you t we talk about market action away from the big headline moves around some of the stock around risk on risk off assets and also around oil, you did see money going into some defence stocks and perhaps that is an early window into the view that you may see bulking up of uh, plenty of defence systems uh, in the West now and that requires much more spending than what we've seen in the past. It was something we were talking about yesterday. Health budgets have been attracting huge amount of attention, of course, around the pandemic. It's now going to be defence budgets that we watch, Jeff. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But but I would I would just um I mean, all of that, yes, absolutely. But coming back to the point that Steve was making about the former states that were within the USSR, I think it is a moment where even as we think about the sanctions, people need to pause and reflect on what next. Because as I say, the market reaction overnight that we saw in the United States, that bounce back and that bounce back we've seen in some Asian markets suggests a very sanguine approach to what is happening here. And let me let me just pose that question to anybody active in the markets who's watching this morning. Um, does President Putin stop there? Does he feel that he's been able to do this 
without a real blow being laid if these sanctions don't cause instant rethinking in terms of his plans. So if he feels that he is emboldened here to take further steps, which of the former Eastern European countries that was in the Soviet Union is going to be the target next? And that's something that I think everybody needs to just reflect on as they think about how quickly they want to embrace risk again at this stage, because this may not be over at the uh, at the stage where Ukraine is invaded. There may be more to come. Nobody knows what's in his head, and I don't think anybody knew that this is where we were going to take this story. But um, let's move on, uh, and let's talk some more then about uh, President Putin and how he's been behaving. The Russian president met with business leaders in the wake of the attack on Ukraine in a televised meeting Putin said Moscow had no other choice but to take action, claiming Western powers created major security risks. He added that he was aware international sanctions would follow. During the meeting, President Putin repeated, Russia wants to stay part of the international trading system. Russia remains a part of the world economy. And having said that, as long as it remains part of it, we don't intend harming the system we feel a part of. We're not going to harm the world economic system we're a part of as long as we're a part of it. I believe our partners have to understand this and not aim to push us out of that system. President Putin there. Well, let's get to Hadley in Moscow. Uh, and Hadley, we've focused a lot on the sanctions and we've talked a lot about the action that's being undertaken in Ukraine, but maybe less so on the mood in Russia among ordinary Russian civilians. What can you tell us about what's happening there? Good morning, Jeff. So essentially over the last 24 hours, they saw multiple protests across as much as 50 cities in this country, Moscow and St. Petersburg being the main centers of activity, apparently. And according to civil society groups, as many as 1,700 people have been detained by this government, allegedly as many as 900 here in Moscow alone. Now, you'll remember several months ago when I spoke with Vladimir Putin on stage at Energy Week, I asked him about that specifically. And I said, listen, you're an ex-KGB agent. What is it that you're so afraid of? that you have to ban protests, take protesters off the streets. And he said to me, you know, not everybody is in jail. And he essentially said that, uh, you know, when it comes to protests, as long as you do it within the constitutional limits, then, hey, you'll be okay. But there is a decided feeling on the ground here in Russia. And we've heard that from various reports again and again throughout the last several weeks that nobody wanted this conflict and they certainly don't want it now. Bigger questions, of course, remain ahead of the open of the market here in just about 40 minutes from now, whether we're going to see the kind of drop, the kind of plunge that we saw yesterday morning when they opened as much dropping as much as 35 to 40 percent, whether we'll continue to see that pressure on the ruble. Lots of questions, frankly, about what the real mind meld is amongst folks who are running the big banks that have been sanctioned. Spearbank, I'm talking about, VTB and others, as well as what's happening in the minds of those over at Gazprom and Rosneft. Because at the end of the day, the Russian president there essentially saying that he knew that Western sanctions were going to happen if he took this decision. He took it anyway. The United States and Western powers have been warning for weeks now that they knew that he was going to invade Ukraine, that it was imminent. And at the same point, this sort of 
of tit for tat. Well, he's invaded Ukraine now. And the sanctions, frankly, amongst folks I've been talking to, both in Ukraine and elsewhere, are a surprise in the sense that they didn't, as you say, as you guys discussed earlier, target them in terms of the SWIFT payment system. They weren't the so-called nuclear option that everyone was anticipating. And also, as Steve was mentioning earlier, they still haven't targeted the energy sector. And of course, that has to do with the folks, I'm told, back in Brussels, those in Germany, those in Italy and elsewhere that are still pushing back on that potential eventuality here. Because whatever the West has done so far, it hasn't been enough to stop him. That's the gist of this. So whether or not we can expect further sanctions, I mean, it seems as if at least the feeling at the Kremlin at this point is not only did they know this was coming, but they're willing to take even more to continue on the path that they're currently on. Jeff? Hadley, and just very briefly, uh, before we move on, there were some reports yesterday of queues outside banks and people withdrawing money. Did you see evidence of that as you were moving around yesterday? Not as yet. We got here quite late yesterday, so I haven't been had the chance to really walk around yet, but that'll happen later today, so I will let you know. All right. Thank you so much for that. And you can go to cnbc.com, everybody. We're going to keep you up to date, obviously, on the latest developments on the crisis in Ukraine in our live blog. So please stay connected with the story via cnbc.com. Still to come on the show, US markets stage a dramatic rebound. Will European bosses follow suit? We'll tell you more about the omens for the Open when we return. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Plenty of action on markets around the Russia-Ukraine situation and Wall Street. What a ride. Uh, we saw a lot of initial selling this knee-jerk reaction as markets took stock of what they had not really priced in. Uh, many were expecting that perhaps we'd seen the worst of it, that uh, the focus for Russian President Putin would be that eastern flank in Ukraine. But to uh, the events, a more aggressive approach across the country provoked selling first up before a bounce back. And it was in particular those big technology names. And I had mentioned this yesterday as we were talking about the potential for investors to change their tact around the aggressive rate path that they had started to price in. And indeed, on the Nasdaq, we did see a lot of the action concentrated, 3.3% pop versus other areas of the market. The Dow positive, as you could see, but only just by a quarter of 1%, very slim gains versus the, the tech sector. And if you think about the dynamics at play here, 
two very different trades, one around the tech sector as investors repriced around growth and the potential, the other around consumer discretionary staples, concerns that you're going to see this inflationary impact now with oil prices rising yet again, the impact on the grain supply, how that impacts many of the, the core inflation products. And you could see that area of the market discretionary has been hit lately, but staples in particular yesterday, one area that was under pressure. So it was a quite a dramatic day. And in terms of the NASDAQ, the turnaround from the start of the session where we were trading down 3.4% to uh, eventually get to a gain of 3.4%, very wide margin. In fact, it was the biggest percentage point swing that we've witnessed since the height of that pandemic volatility back in March 2020. So a stunning session as you take a look at uh, just how markets moved very quickly and in very different directions from the start of the day to the end of the day. I want to take you to Treasuries. This is the big question. Now, a lot of market participants are saying there is no way the Fed can act as aggressively as it might have intended to now that we have these events playing out on the geopolitical level. But the Fed itself still talking about a March rate hike. And you can see it's been a choppy old trade. Then as a result on the short end, we've lifted a little bit 1.5 plus this morning, as you can see on that 10 year we went lower, we've gone back high, and you can see we approached a little bit off the 2% mark at this stage, but not rallying above it. Uh, fascinating, isn't it, as we take a look at some of the, the safe haven flows and also the assessment around central bank action. To the oil markets, and uh, this was one area we saw even early on, European session, where there was a huge amount of action. We got up to the 103 handle very, very quickly. We've drifted south a little bit from those highs, but still holding at uh, 101 plus on Brent and uh, 94, close to 95 on WTI. So it is a stronger trade again this morning. That's where we saw a lot of the action to the energy stocks in trade yesterday. Question is, can we go higher? Some of the analysts forecasting a number much steeper than this above 120 now as uh, some of the short-term targets are reassessed. Let me take you to the European markets. Uh, early negative uh, trade, a lot of fear in the, the market action first up yesterday. And we saw uh, selling across the board. If you look at some of the, the trades on the individual market, it culminated in benchmark of the Stocks Europe 600 down more than three and a quarter percent. But one of the worst hit markets was actually the Italian stock market. It was down more than four percent. And that was matched by uh, selling, as you can see on the DAX, uh, that market down close to four percent as well. So a fairly violent reaction across on European markets, which does set the scene, given how Wall Street traded for a little bit of a rebound on some of these European names this morning. I want to take you to the, the MOEX, the equity trade in Russia and also the ruble. The Russian stock market got absolutely slammed early on. We saw initial selling of double digit numbers before an absolute plunge, a tumble of 33 percent. It uh, was a fairly violent trade that we saw on the uh, trade. As you can see, uh, this is uh, we're setting up for trade this morning. We're not too far off. Uh, let's uh, take a look at what we had on the uh, ruble. And you can see uh, the trade is, of course, one where we've recovered a little bit of territory, but we are still trading much weaker at a record low. But then, uh, of course, we lifted off that low as investors uh, watch the oil price and the ramifications there. U.S. Uh, markets uh, are having some bearing, as you can see, on those Asian markets today slightly green across from uh, some of the stocks. And this is the early picture you can see for futures indicating a bit of a give back after it was, it was a very strong session for those big tech names. Jeff. Karen, thank you very much. Let's bring Charlie Robertson into the conversation. Charlie is Global Chief Economist at Renaissance Capital. Charlie, good morning to you. Um, how do you assess the impact of the sanctions that we've had overnight from various actors in this story? 
they looked to be in line with what the US was so helpfully flagging to everybody um, and so good on the intelligence and so helpful in terms of what was likely to come. Um, so the scenario analysis we did in January said this cuts growth from what would have been 3% at this oil price under the soft sanctions that, that were unveiled on Monday and Tuesday uh, to 1%. Um, so, so the Russian economy, we think, still grows, um, but it grows really weakly. Um, and that's going to continue to be the case uh, probably for many years to come, given <clears throat> how, how lengthy these sanctions are going to be in place. The um, the sanctions obviously avoided um, involving oil and gas or wheat at this stage. We also saw a notable um, rejection in Europe of uh, shutting down access to the SWIFT system. Uh, do you think that we might see those included in a further round at some stage, or would you guess this uh, is it? No, I, and I think this, there is going to be the threat of more more sanctions to come. I think the US has reacted very quickly, <clears throat> um, but they did. Obviously, they had a sense that this was coming. They were warning us this was coming. Um, but I, I do think we might well see more more sanctions. Um, on, in terms of the hard commodity story, uh, in terms of oil, in terms of gas, in terms of food, no, the, the Americans are taking the same view that Putin's taking. That, that people still want those Russian commodities and they're still going to buy those Russian commodities. Um, so this is a way of, of penalising long-term Russian growth, um, but without causing so much damage to the rest of the world. It's, it's the calculation Putin was making all along. Um, now, I, I don't think many people outside of the Kremlin would say this was worth it, but that's, that's the situation we're in at the moment, unfortunately. Charlie, very good to see you back on the channel this morning. Um, in terms of the medium term, though, sanctions don't work in the very short term. We know that. We've seen that with various regimes around the world. But they can work over a longer term period as well. Do you think these sanctions are actually something that was going to create a completely different economic structure for Russia? Because let's face it as well, if they can't over the medium to longer term sell their gas to Europe, and there is plenty of gas out there, by the way, whether it's in the eastern Mediterranean, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's coming from North America as well, is this going to create a change that has been long been talked about in the Russian economy? Yeah. I mean, on the sanctions point, you're absolutely right. I've just got this book in front of me by, by Andrea Kendall-Taylor, who was uh, for a while Biden's nominee uh, to be on the National Security Council on, as, as the Russia, senior Russia, uh, Central Asia resident. And she's saying back in 2016, looking at the evidence, sanctions don't work unless you go the whole hog and, and sanction oil and gas. And we put out that analysis, in fact, uh, in 2014, when we wondered if the West would go that far. They would sanction Russian oil and gas. They didn't. Uh, it looks very unlikely that they will. Um, for Russia, it does leave it looking more like a raw material exporter for China. Um, for, for the West, we're back at the same questions I was asking in March 2014, four days after the Crimea referendum, when Russia is saying to Ukraine, uh, we want you to be a federal country, we want you to be a neutral country, and we want you to sign over Crimea. And I think, actually, that's exactly what Putin still wants. Um, and that's what he's going to carry on attacking Ukraine until he gets. Uh, and then I suspect his troops, by the way, will leave. Uh, I think this is Georgia 2008 again. It's not going to take five days, unfortunately. Uh, and it's certainly not going to be as low in terms of the cost of life. But I think that's what Putin's thinking, is that he's going to leave. Um, and and if, if Ukraine ever goes back on 
on what it has to agree to promise in the coming weeks and months, um, that they'll invade again. Um, so that's the, the situation from their perspective. Um, in terms of the sanctions, yes, it leaves Russia as this raw material exporter. And I think Europe should be diversifying its energy dependency on, on Russia, which is what I wrote in 2014. And I said it was going to take five to 10 years to really make a shift in European dependency on Russia. In fact, very little was done. The carbon taxing could be the way that that gradually changes Europe's dependency on Russia, um, imposing these carbon taxes on Russian oil and gas exports. Um, and I suspect that that is, is the direction we're going in over the next few years, but there's not going to be a sudden shift. Uh, and meanwhile, Russia, providing it still runs a current account surplus, and we think the ruble will stay as weak as necessary to retain that current account surplus. Russia will still have savings to invest in its own economy to make some modest uh, improvements um, in right. its technological ability. But it's right. going to be relatively, it's not going to be as good as it was. Uh, Charlie, and that's, that's the cost. Sorry. Charlie, you mentioned energy security. Can I move to food security? Because there are concerns in the soft commodities complex. And we saw that on the price action around wheat and corn yesterday, that there could be some shortages coming through from Ukraine and Russia. What are the implications here? How do we think about this, given there are already inflationary concerns across the globe? Well, I, I mean, we've already seen the West uh, contribute somewhat to that via the, uh, the sanctions on Belarus um, after 2020, sanctioning potash, which is so helpful um, as, a, as a, effectively a fertilizer to boost agricultural output. Um, and it's become more and more difficult for, for Belarus, one of the biggest fertilizer producers in the world, uh, to, to export. Um, so part of the food price rise we're seeing now, I think, is because of the West sanctions on Belarus for downing that, that Ryan airplane um, a, a two years back. So the food price problem is there. Um, wh who does it hit? I mean, it really hits low-income countries where food is 50% of the CPI basket, places uh, uh, in Africa, for example, North Africa, huge purchaser of Russian and Ukrainian uh, grains. Um, so what I hope will happen is that Saudi who suddenly got this oil windfall as a result of Russia's behavior. Um, Saudi will perhaps lend more dollars to the Egyptian government um, and perhaps to other governments in North Africa to be able to enable them to subsidize food uh, again uh, and, and to try and take off some of the, the pain for, for local people in North Africa. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC. <laughs>